0: So, does this practice address embodiment or having out-of-body
1: experiences? So the question is about um, how do out-of-body experiences, where you're you're not aware of the body, maybe, uh, in the practice, how does that relate in this practice?
2: Yeah, it, it, we're not we're not specifically cultivating out-of-body experiences, mm-hmm. but. The body disappearing absolutely is a phenomenon that can happen and happens to a fair number of people as they mm-hmm. deepen. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's one more thing that can be very startling to the sense of self if we haven't had that before. To realize that we're not just the physicality either uh, can be very liberating in its own experience. But there. You know, we won't cover this today, but as this practice progresses, I mean, there's a whole practice path for Sthamata, which goes through, as Tita mentioned briefly earlier, there's there's eight jhanas, there's eight particular qualities, let's say, um, available, and uh, those are not necessarily contained in the body, they're not necessarily contained somewhere else, but the perception is Mm -hmm. that when it's happening, there's not a body perception. Windows. That's part of the non-dual experience. There's aware, sort of pure awareness is, is the, the location.
1: Yeah, there is an aspect. We're in, in a way, we're, we're turning, we talked about orienting towards the mystery or the the, the, unconditioned. the unconditioned. And as you go say you were you know, to look at this practice as it gets more and more deep and more and more refined, there's a whole aspect of it that is formless where we're orienting towards formless the formless realms. And if you if you imagine how manifestation happens, it comes from that mystery of the unconditioned, down through formless, down through form, and here we all are in manifest reality. So there is a way where we're turning towards that which is beyond manifest reality and doing the practice. So it can be it can be both startling and liberating because at some point this body will go, and then what? So if we already have some experience with that, that process could be less um, unfamiliar.
2: And the, the whole Summit to Practice path, the progression is in the back of our book, so if you've seen our book, it's, it is laid out there.
1: <laughs> Last year we went through the whole chart, but this year we won't do that, when, so. When we
2: are doing the book with Shambhala, I did suggest that they develop a board game and I thought you could have a little thing and roll some dice and you could move through the summit to practice path. And they thought it was a very lovely idea, but they couldn't figure out how to actually market that. And I thought it was a great idea myself. Game
1: for Buddhists?
2: I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Maybe
1: we could do like a video game or something. And, and there could be a whole thing about
2: which piece you choose. You know, you you are your piece. We can have a whole exploration, you see.
1: Okay. So uh, we're going to move on then and talk oh, some about... One, oh, one right. more. Yeah. So the question is, if the practice was to progress through all of its different stages, do we always stay with the breath at the Anapana spot as the object?
2: The answer is no. We, we start with the breath, and there's a point in the practice what what is roughly called the form jhanas, which are the first four. Those, <coughs> those the breath is the object. And when when the movement is into what's called the formless or uh, jhanas or realms, Uh, the object will change. The breath no longer um, works.
1: Yeah, you can't use an object that's in form for for access to formless, so then the whole thing changes. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked some about differences between concentration (laughs) practice or samatha practice and vipassana, but just to give a few more um, aspects of that, since so many people here are are vipassana practitioners, Um, so one, one is the actual use of the word mindfulness or mindful, and if you look, the way we've taken the word mindful in, in the West, especially in the Vipassana practice, it's almost, you could almost say, I think I was talking to, I don't know who it was, maybe even Joseph Goldstein on the three-month retreat. Anyway, so some people think we're actually becoming like the mindfulness lineage, so the word mindfulness has become so predominant in the practice and really what the word mindful means generically is just paying attention to your object that's all that it means to be mindful so when we're mindful of our object we're, we're we're staying with the object of our practice whatever that is so in this practice we're also mindful it's not like there isn't mindfulness as a part of this practice it's just that we're being mindful of the breath as it's crossing the anapana spot that's really uh, at its purest sense, the main thing we're mindful of all the time.
2: And that's what the Anapanasati means. Right. Mindfulness, is mindfulness of, breathing. of breathing. But the application of it in Buddhism, there's many applications.
1: Right, And we talked about what's being cultivated, the difference there, so with the concentration practice we're, we're building that muscle of really um, loosening the grip of our personality patterning and the way that we get pulled off the object is is our habituated condition patterning. And so what we're really doing in this practice is building strength, if you want to think of it like that, to um, either turn away actively or ultimately just to not have the same level of interest so that when our story is pulling us off, which really ultimately most of that story leads to suffering. So we're right back at the first noble truth here, is that all these stories and ways that we what we take ourselves to be, either having to have this or not having to have that, or um, all of the contents of a lot of the thought patterning, um, a lot of it leads to suffering. So we're just deconditioning so that we have more freedom that that isn't, isn't compulsive. That's really what we're cultivating with the concentration. With the vipassana, we're cultivating the ability to just be with things as they are. So whatever is arising, we're not needing it to be a certain way, we can just be with whatever is predominant in our awareness without being attracted to it or aversive to it. We can just be with whatever arises, and that's a wonderful capacity to cultivate. That's part of why the Vipassana pras- practice has been so, um, so wide-reaching and so had such an impact on our culture. So, but they're but they're each cultivating something different, and they're both things that are important and beneficial to us on that journey and path of liberation. Also, uh, a way to look at the differences is that in the concentration pa- practice, we're really penetrating that um, that mystery. We're taking that laser-like. Or more and more laser-like awareness, and we're, there's a way of penetrating into realms and experiences and aspects of our of what we are and the mystery of what we are that normally aren't available to us just living our everyday life. So there's a certain kind of the cutting through that laser that penetrates beyond our normal awareness with the vipassana. It's more, and these are all our words, but it's more like we're permeating so that we're taking our awareness and really um, there's no separation at all from the phenomena that are arising. So there's a way that whatever is happening inside or outside, we can just be with. So, so a difference, for example, would be how one handles pain. So in Vipassana, you might actually... Has anyone ever had pain doing Vipassana before? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody here has ever had that. Anybody anyway, pain today? <laughs> yeah. So you might have pain while you're sitting, and in Vipassana you would really maybe even attend to the pain, go, go into it, really be with it, because there's a certain liberation that can come from it not mattering whether you have pain or not. So there's a real value to that. There's also a value to saying, oh, there's pain, so what? I'm just going to come here." And to not having the pain grip you all the time. So then, you know, when you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off in traffic, after, after when there's more capacity to just let go, something in life comes up that could be a trigger, or whatever, we just turn away.
2: Or, or if it comes up, it dissipates quickly. It
1: dissipates quickly. So we're, we're cultivating the capacity to just turn away from things that might be triggers. So each of, the of these aspects, is important. One of the big
2: aspects here, too, is we're actually learning. We start this, in this practice, we start by learning not to add energy.
1: Mm-hmm. So, for
2: example, if the resistance, say fear is coming up, our normal tendency is to turn our attention to it, just as humans, forget about meditation. We turn our attention to it, and by doing so, we're adding energy. We're infusing it and giving it more life. In this practice, we're saying, no, we're coming back to here, to the Anupana spot. And so we're just allowing its presence to be there without adding energy. And and Mm -hmm. routinely, uniformly, we see people where these patterns start getting less and less compulsive and less driving because we just stop adding energy to them.
1: Right. So that gives you a little sense of again some of the some of the differences and also what we found is that the two there really is a dance because even on our retreats, people like when we we won't get into this today but when people really have a hindrance come up strongly and they're just on retreat because what what starts happening is that as um, people settle and there's less of our time during the day so say you're you're meditating eight hours a day or something um, there's less and less time for our normal ways of knowing ourselves. those thought patterns don't have as much space to run So the little bit of space they have, they start intruding in a lot stronger. And the hindrances can really come up very strongly in this practice because there's so little space for the normal thought patterning. Whereas, like in Vipassana, sometimes a a hindrance can come in and you actually turn towards the hindrance. So there's still a little bit more space for it. So the hindrances can come on really strong. And... um, we will actually have people use what they know from Vipassana to work with a hindrance. But in this practice, the idea is that you come back to the object as soon as you can. But the idea that they're totally separate, it's just not true. You know, and and in, in Vipassana, of course, you're developing concentration when you're doing that practice. So, so there's really a little bit more of a dance going on than, than what it sounds like sometimes.
2: On the retreat, though, we're doing, if, if someone's encouraged to do the Vipassana, for an, an issue, it's done very specifically. We're, right. we're saying, okay, now we want you to stop with the a spot and move to this, turn and face whatever this is, and just be present to it. And all we're doing is trying to get it to where the person can come back to the object, because the hindrance is so so big and looming that they can't really stay with the object at all. So we're not, again, we're not therapeutically resolving anything, we're just getting to where one can be with the object and not be completely pulled
1: off. And at the same time, there is a way with the Samatha practice that we are learning to be with things as they are, right. just as we are, are learning that in Vipassana. So there's, there's a lot of overlap, and we find that really the, the two do complement each other well, really Very well much. for, for a, a well-rounded practice.
2: We, in, in doing this teaching, when we first started teaching, our, our teacher really encouraged us strongly and specifically to really develop context for Westerners. He really got that there was a way that he communicated, and he, and he keeps the teachings very uh, very pure in his mind. But he knew there was a way he wasn't quite communicating it where Westerners could really get it within our own culture. And so one of the ways that we came up to talk about this practice is we use what we call the surf zone metaphor. And uh, this started because Tina was once a certified scuba diver, and all of us have seen on the beaches here people doing beach dives, you know, they get all their gear on and then they start walking backwards into the water. And we realized that's exactly what this is like. You know, we're focusing here and there's some ways we can't see the waves that are coming behind us, that are coming at us. So we are kind of walking backwards and it's kind of like we're moving off from the shore and initially it's the, it's the environmental factors, let's say. Oh, this chair is a little bit uncomfortable, my, my, my knee hurts. There's sort of these little things to take us off the object. It's like the small waves right near the shore. And if we keep sort of progressing backward, backwards into the ocean, then the bigger waves, the bigger issues, the more fundamental issues start coming up, again, sort of dr- trying to drag us off the object. And if the scuba diver stays and doesn't get knocked about by the waves, they continue making progress out to the deep water, which is what we're looking to do, is really to go to that territory within ourselves that is naturally still, naturally has a depth and a quality to it but it's, it's a great metaphor because these, these waves will come and for all of us, we all have to go through the surf zone every time we do the practice and some of the waves will knock us down and when we get knocked down and we're, we've lost the object, it's like the scuba diver, they've got to collect their gear and clean it up and get it back on and then they start walking backwards again. But the thing is, we're not, our objective is not to stay in the surf zone, we're, again, we're trying to get out to the, past the surf zone to the deep water. But it really helps kind of put it into a context that we can see that it is an expected part of the practice, that our particular defilement or hindrance pattern is going to come up. It's going to be, in effect, knocking against us. And every time that we stay focused on the objective of going out to the deep water, that is a purification of mind. It isn't just when you're out in the deep still water, that's purification of mind. That, That is a quality of purification of mind, and, but this passing through our own territory, that's absolutely purification of mind, too. Because as Tina said, we're cultivating, we're inviting a neutrality and indifference to our patterning so we don't get just pulled and, and tossed about by the waves.
1: Yeah, so a lot of times people think that the hindrances, if hindrances are coming up, like my mom will say, oh, I can't meditate. I try and I just am thinking all the time, you know. And I think a lot of people with this practice, the hindrances really can be um, more noticeable in a way because there's less space for them to, to get some airtime, and that actually is part of the practice. The surf zone is part of the practice. So, uh, just a word of of encouragement that if you uh, today or on you know at a later time are undertaking the practice and that's happening, every time that we encounter that and we build the strengths to turn away, we are actually undertaking purification of mind and doing that.
2: And again, we're just, we're just lessening that energy ever, ever so much that the next time they come up, they're not quite as strong. It's not quite as big a wave necessarily the next yeah. time around.
1: So should we take some questions or yeah, go? If
2: there are any, we'll take a few questions.
0: On
1: that. I mean, I don't know how to kind of do Vipassana without the concentration. Um, uh, yeah, well that's, that. The so the question? question is, um, in his experience with doing Vipassana, there's usually a period of the Samatha at the beginning, so how, you know, it seems like that's a prerequisite for Vipassana in a way. Yeah. Yeah, well, our teacher, again, we went through the three stages, sila, samatha, vipassana, so that kind of is reflective of what you're saying. Um, Different people teach it different ways. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting is that there's a few, very small, small number of sutta references where the Buddha talks about just skipping samatha completely, and those have kind of been held up as... um, a kind of permission to just skip it completely and that's again all of you are the masters of your own practice so you can do whatever you want but that isn't if you really read what the Buddha said over and over and over that's not what he was really encouraging he was just saying if you if that's your only option then give that a try but to have the power of the concentration behind the the inquiry of the Vipassana um, just gives it more more strength to actually do what it's intended to. You so know. they, they um, we actually have a quote in here from Ajahn, um, is Ajahn, Ajahn Shah. Shah? Who talks about really the, the concentration being the well, the sharpened sword that then you use in to cut through in the Vipassana. So you could wa- wave a sword around all you want, but if it's dull, how much is it gonna do?
2: The, the other aspect for us is it really came down to the question, what did the Buddha actually practice? Yeah. And that's what became engaging to us, was th- this clearly was an important practice to the Buddha. Um, I mean, he did it, it was really his first practice as a child and the last practice of his life. So that alone was really impressive to me. After you know, teaching for 40 years, he's dying, this is what he does? It's got to mean something, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So, but, but it depends, again, Tina's right, each person is really the captain of their own ship. They get to choose what they want to do, what they're called to do. And for the people that are called, when they feel the burn for this practice, they, they just have to do it. And other people, it's not, not so much an issue.
1: Yeah. So I think we'll go on to I'll another. One more question oh. back
2: there. Uh, yeah, I have um, a little trouble with the word purification.
0: Mm-hmm. When, when you talked and and it was interesting too that you used the word filter two different ways earlier you said um, we're going to filter out the impurities so that's like excluding something and then later you said um, then we can have our experience unfiltered which you know we, then you don't want the filter so um, I guess um, I, I always have trouble with this they're, they're, they call them hindrances get in the way of what you're trying to do, but you don't but still they're part of the experience that you want right. to not be fully open. You know, we, don't, we, we want to be fully
2: open to everything, right? So right.
0: how do you, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a good question. He's <coughs>
2: asking about the use of the term purification that um, both it can sound like, in using the word purification, mm-hmm. like we're wanting to reject the hindrances and yet, in Buddhism, the hindrances are talked about as hindrances, so it makes sense to have some distance. And we've used the term like purifying like purifying water, so kind of what the dynamic is around that. Is um, that close enough mm-hmm. to your question? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, how do you, you know, how, do you,
0: how do you have these things that you want to get rid of without falling into dualism
2: and judgment and right. inertia, I yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're, yeah, we're not actually trying, we're, we're not specifically trying to get rid of them. We're simply, uh, again, we're, we're cultivating a disinterest, a neutrality, and we're allowing the energy to dissipate to the point that these uh, don't necessarily, aren't, aren't as big and active. They're not the gigantic waves they started out to be. They may still be present, but we're focusing on the object where we're, we're deliberately turning away. So it, it, isn't, it, it isn't that we're saying the hindrances are evil. It isn't a good versus bad again it's it's an impediment it's something that's been created in, in effect we're covering up the natural state and by really being willing to look at these things and challenge their reality we allow them to go into their natural place which is they may be present I, I, I may feel some fear sitting up here but I don't have to necessarily go there I don't have to inflame it I, I can be clear my object is to interact with you so it, it's more like this. It's but but yeah, it's kind of like we, we have the problem of language of any terms we use. We we got a note from someone who didn't like the surf zone metaphor. They had a terrifying experience with the ocean as a child, <laughs> and so they w- wished we could change the metaphor to something else. And I told Tina, well, whatever we choose, someone's gonna have a childhood well, trauma well, Brian about. You well, know.
1: Brian's a cycling enthusiast, yeah, so yeah. maybe we can get. We'll, yeah. we'll let him
2: do a, a one on cycling and road miles and all that. But.
1: but really, it comes back, I would just point back to the Four Noble Truths as really the starting point for the answer to that question. And the First Noble Truth really is that
2: life is,
1: yeah, life is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be imperfections in life or suffering, depending how you want to translate dukkha, um, unsatisfactoriness. I sort of like that. So where, where does that really stem from? Well, if you look at most of where it stems from is our own, our own the way that we respond to phenomena that arise. And that, that response is based on our conditioning, because something could happen to Stephen one day and he could be totally non-reactive. If the exact same thing happens to me, I might react to it. So clearly it's not the stimulus that's causing it. It's our conditioning that's that is the difference between one of us reacting and one not reacting. So if you take that, that's kind of the whole premise of Buddhism. You know, so, so life is, is going to be unsatisfactory. That's just an inherent part of the human experience. Um, there's an answer to that. And in Buddhism, we have the Noble Eightfold Path, but basically it comes down to freedom from our sense of me.
2: It, and it's, that's it's that freedom, is
1: the conditioning. It, it's that w- freedom
2: from, from the conviction that I truly exist. You know, there, there is there is an existence, but it's the conviction that that's that's the whole story, and it's just not. So that's really why why we do this. And of course, right. one of the eightfold paths is what right concentration. And what did the Buddha say? Right concentration, absorption.
1: Yeah, so if you go back, so this is a long-winded answer to the hindrances. But really, hindrances are just, if you look at why we suffer, it's mostly, I mean, there is actual pain that happens in life that's unavoidable. But the second arrow that the Buddha talked of, that's the first arrow. The second arrow is our reaction to it. And so, yeah, are the hindrances evil? No, they're not. But that's what causes us to suffer. So if we can have more freedom from that, we don't have to judge that. and at the same time, if there wasn't, all of us wouldn't even be here today on a beautiful Saturday if there wasn't some call that was um, calling us to our, our depth that's beyond that.
2: It's a call home. So, yeah. That's what we feel.
1: And if you don't like the term, you can just throw that out and substitute something that's more, mm-hmm. more palatable.
2: It's, but it's not intended as a judgment. It's not puritanical yeah. in that sense. Yeah.
1: If you look, I mean, we we've studied with non-dual teachers as well, and have this is the beauty of a practice like Zen, where they're going straight for the endpoint. You know, in Zen there's really no practices. You just go straight for the endpoint of the enlightenment experience. Um, the problem is that without a, a path. One of the beauties of Theravadan Buddhism is that we actually have a path that can help those experiences be more likely to arise. And a, a full jhana absorption is a non-dual state where we can... There is kind of a repeatable path right. to that once one has the freedom from the personality. So at that point, you know, if, if from, a, from a purely non-dual perspective, the, our personality conditioning is also the ground of being. So there's actually nothing to get rid of, but that's that's a whole nother conversation. So we should go on Time to so the yeah. So we'll do another sitting. Um, should I do reminders? Uh, you,
2: have, you have you have on there. You have on there
1: reminders. Okay. So we'll sit for um, about twenty five minutes, and you will getting a hang for the instructions so we won't give them again but I may do a few m- reminders just the, and the reminders really are just to support um, building a habit we really want to encourage you to not be have judgment if you've gone off the object it's really important to be gentle with yourself to not judge and to just be very kind and just bring the awareness back that's all that's really needed